fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. And today we are welcoming spring by setting the table with two seasonal goodies that arrive at the beginning of spring in Tennessee, maple syrup and asparagus. We visit with maker of small batch maple syrup, Clint Smith of the Riverdale community. And Clint shares with us how he makes this small batch maple syrup. And he's also a talented welder and furniture maker. And we also have a brand new contributor to the Tennessee Farm Table, author, editor, and gardener, Kelly Smith Trimble. Last week, we focused on Kelly's book, Vegetable Gardening Wisdom, a collection of seasonal advice and inspiration for edible gardeners. And today, Kelly shares her first installment of her new monthly segment, Garden Variety. And today, Kelly features one of those first fruits of the spring season, asparagus. Welcome, spring, and thank you for your good company. Let's start first with a visit with Clint Smith of the Riverdale community in East Knotts County. First off, we'll hear about how he makes his small batch maple syrup. Now, he doesn't sell this, but if you ask him real nice, he might share a little bit with you. The Riverdale community is an agriculturally viable and significant area of Knotts County, and it's also the location of the Cruz Dairy Farm. And we actually made this recording in Sherry Cruz's kitchen in her white barn. Clint is one of those positive, light-up-the-room kind of people, and it seems to me that he could pretty much figure out how to do anything. And let's join him now. Gracious, we are just sitting here at the White Barn here at the Cruise Dairy Farm. And Clint Smith, thanks for sitting here. And no problem. Thanks for having me. Syrup maker, how in the world did you start making this? You know, I first started thinking about it. I had dendrology in college. What does that mean? It's a study of trees, oh. basically. And you know, I can remember in the book that we had, there was just this little section about careers in the timber industry, you know, and it was everything from 
cruising timber to sawmill to, you know, all these different things. And one of them was making maple syrup. You know, of course, I mean, from being a kid and everything, I, I knew that it came from trees. I just never really thought about it, you know? Yeah. And so, I, you know, I didn't know. I thought you just went out and drilled a hole and, you know, I did, never really thought. And so I kind of got it going in my mind. And years, you know, when I say years, probably six, seven, eight years later, I was homesick one day. I mean, like flu sick. And there was a show came on, um, something on public television. It was it showed some people in northern Kentucky making maple syrup. I was like, well, you know, if they make it there, I'm going to try it here. And so, <laughs> so I got the computer and I found, a, I found a site that you can order like hobbyist level tapping equipment, you know. And then I was using the old buckets that hang from the trees and the taps, what they call a spile. And so I ordered a three spile bucket tap bit little kit. And I'm laying there sick. My wife comes home from work. And the first thing I'm out, I'm like, order this, please. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Is that the fever getting to you or what? And I said, no. I just, you know, so she's like, all right, you know. So she orders it and it comes in. And that was in like February, which is February 1st of March, depending on our weather pattern. That's the time. I mean, that's right at time. And so I get all excited, you know, and I get better and I get out and I tap these trees and I probably didn't get a thimble full of sap. Oh, mercy. Man, I was heartbroken. Oh. You know, and I was, well, I've misidentified, and I knew I hadn't misidentified the tree. I was just like, what, you know what, I've got the only three dry maple trees. <laughs> so, and, and since then I learned the, the weather just wasn't right, you know, because the next year those same trees put out gallons just in that amount of time I studied and learned you know it's all about weather and so when I made that first batch and it, it you know just watching that transformation and the smell and everything man it's it's like I don't know you know it's like anytime anybody introduces you to something else neat and you do it for the first time pseudo successful and you know right then you're like I'm going to be into that. That's, that's, you know, and I knew right then that was going to be something that I wanted to just learn more about and keep going. It's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of it. It's a good one. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. Happy spring, everybody. Today, we are visiting with Clint Smith. He lives in the eastern portion of Knotts County in the Riverdale community, and he makes small batch maple syrup. In the second part of our visit, Clint will describe the taste of this syrup and his process of making it. So how do you describe how your syrup tastes? It's, it's got a very caramel, almost a buttery flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe it's because of a slower process. Like I say, it's kind of buttery to me at the end. Yeah. It, it tastes, um, yeah, it's when I'm making it, especially when I move inside, 
when I do my true, what I call a finished boil, which is I'm taking it down to finished product, when I've taken that 50 gallons down to a stovetop pot, it smells like walking in an old candy store in the oh, house. You know what I'm, You know what I'm saying? Yes. Almost like you walk in old fudge shop. Yeah, it's just got that. And that, you know, I taste that smell because I've been around it so much. And I do it on a wood-fired boiler until I move inside that I built. And I, me, and it may just be in my mind, but I don't think so. I can taste some of that oak smoke a little bit in it too, you know, and I've been around it mm -hmm. for hours and hours and hours. So, I, you know, I would say kind of a caramel, you know, oaky. What do you think? Before I go too deep into it, and there, there are probably people listening to this that got more experience at it than me, somebody that grew up up north or something. You know, I've, I've kind of self-taught and self-studied, but I have talked to a lot of people with a lot of experience in it, either in forums on the internet or, you know, I was lucky enough to spend a couple hours with a guy up in Vermont uh, a couple people twice, two different trips to Vermont that, you know, it's like talking to an expert in anything. Yeah. They, they, t they taught me more in the amount of time you and I will sit here and speak than it took me a couple of years, you know. Like you asked, I'm telling you my method. Uh -huh. Okay, so this is not the method, this is my method. First steps, identifying your trees, you know, I went into all that. Then there's tapping the trees. I don't use the old uh, hanging bucket style anymore. I use what they call a tube tap. Puts a smaller hole in the tree, and I can carry more of those tubes and those little taps and things with me in the woods on one run, and it just eliminates my trips back and forth to the truck, you know, and things like that. To oh, carry. Yeah. So it's, it's been more productive that way. And so I use food-grade buckets or jugs and when those are full you know when the weather's right so when i keep referring to the weather we've got to have nights well below freezing and days well above and that's typically what we get this time of year yeah. used to a lot now it's almost rare that don't mean if it turned off to 30 tonight we're just going to have a big sap run it's it it's got to get the internal temperature of the tree at the threat of freezing they push all the sap down to their roots below ground as a defense mechanism so the tree doesn't freeze and bust. Oh. And then it'll come up when it heats up back during the day, back down at night. When you hear people talk about the sap flow, that's what it is. Wow. And then you're trying to tap into that vascular system, if you will, of the tree yes. to get that out. And so I'll tap and then I'll try to collect daily or every other day uh, I've got a couple of refrigerators in my shop that I completely gutted that I can stack my five gallon buckets in okay. when those refrigerators get full that's when I'll have a boil down okay. and so I collect it all um, like I say I, I built a wood fired boiler that I use and it's just much more efficient than when I was using like a turkey fryer setup or something mm -hmm. you know the, the, the surface area of my pans the fire it's cheaper you know and so I'll do one or two things at that point. I will either take all that, which typically I'm full of what I can hold at about, right there about the 40 gallon mark. So I'll just use this last time I did a run. I took that 40 down to a three gallon concentrate, all right? Mm -hmm. Then I will take that concentrate, even the next day sometimes, 
or the next day. You know, it's it's pretty sterile solution at that point. It's been boiling for nine or ten hours, and then I put it back in a sanitized bucket. You're good. Plus, it's refrigerated. I might do a couple series of those and then blend those concentrations and do what I call a finish run. Or I will take that and I'll then go to a smaller uh, kettle over, over propane. And when I get that down to where <clears throat> I can fit it on a stovetop pot or even sometimes before then, that's when you can mess up all those months and weeks of work. You really can't mess up the front end because all you're doing is taking that whatever percentage of water you don't want in it away. You're just doing a reduction. You're literally sitting there watching water boil until it kind of turns brown then gets more brown. But right there at the end when that when it makes that transition of being more sugar than it is water, then that's when you can scorch it and, and mess the whole deal up. So that's when I moved to the stovetop in the house. I've got my candy thermometers. I've got everything going because there's a certain temperature that you want to take it to, and it's done. Oh. So you'll you'll sit there and watch that pot boil at 212 for an entire day, and then all of a sudden you'll hit 213, you know, and you know your sugar content is exceeded water content. Mm. And that's when you got to really be on your toes because it can all... Is that when the phone I've rings? I've had it happen. What's that? Is that when the phone rings? That's when the phone rings. That's when... The, the diaper needs a change. Oh, up. buddy. I, you know, you have a big boil over or something. So that's pretty much what I do. And then at that point, I'll uh, sterilize my quart masons or pint masons or even like these little little bottles I ordered. I'll, you know, I'll boil all them in water like you would if you're going to can something. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll put it in them at, I try to be over 180 degrees, and then they'll seal. You know, the, you know the lids. You can hear them popping and clicking, and um, then they're pretty well, you know, storable for a couple of years. I mean, I've heard of people. That's my method, and then you know. All these people that have let me tap or friends of mine or people that trade or whatever, that's when I put them in these little bottles and um, had a stamp place in town making a little stamp. And it's so cute. So it's, uh, that, that is my, that's long-winded, but that's my method of making it. Oh, I smell the bourbon. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, there is zero like bourbon poured in that. Mm. That's what it has extracted back out of that wood. Oh, that is delicious. It's killer. That's my favorite. I love when people try that for the first time because they're always like, and I'm telling you, you can't just pour bourbon in that and make that do that. You've got to go through that oak and I found that out. That's unbelievably good. That's killer, isn't it? Dang. That's, so that's what your X bottle is. Is the are you kidding? Is the bourbon age one? That's so nice. And there's some regular. Um, Gosh, you're just being so generous. I appreciate it so much. Well, it's kind of my thing. I mean, I like to talk about it. it. It's it's my thing. You know, it's it's so. Got to give Sherry her bottle for the year, Colleen. You know, they let me tap some of their stuff. So we eat it all. Heck, we'll make some waffle here in a minute. What I mean. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. We've been visiting with Clint Smith, and he makes small batch maple syrup. 
Clint is also a really talented welder and furniture maker, and some of his beautiful furniture and welded work is in use at J.C. Holdway Restaurant in downtown Knoxville. I've included some pictures on my website of some of his tables and his welded racks used at J.C. Holdway, and also contact information to get in touch with Clint at TennesseeFarmTable.com. Up next is a new monthly contributor to the Tennessee Farm Table, author, editor, and gardener Kelly Smith-Trimble. She makes her home in East Tennessee, and she's currently the Senior Digital Editorial Director for HGTV, where she answers vegetable gardening questions in a social video series called Dig It. That series has more than a million views collectively. She has also been a writer and editor for Southern Living, the National Park Foundation, and Bonnie Plants. And her vegetable garden was featured in the June 2020 issue of Southern Living Magazine. And that is some serious Southern woman credibility right there to have your vegetable garden featured in Southern Living. She was born in Knoxville and has spent her life in various parts of Southern Appalachia. So today, here's her first installment of her new monthly segment, Garden Variety. Is there another vegetable that signifies spring as much as asparagus? Peas, perhaps, but they must be sown anew every year, while perennial asparagus, once planted, chooses annually when exactly it will shoot up from the ground to herald spring is here. I, for one, can't wait for those first shoots to arrive. Since I cut back the plants late last fall, my asparagus patch sits bare outside the window of my garden shed which has also become my home office over the past year. The only color dotting the ground comes from the myriad toys my dog Rufus has dropped there. A red plush toy in the shape of a beet, complete with googly eyes, a little lamb, and a real elk antler he's been gnawing on for three years now. Elk are hardy animals. Asparagus is a tough creature too. It can produce in the same spot for up to 20 years. It doesn't appreciate competition, so plant it in a dedicated bed or the corner of a larger bed and keep it well weeded. Though it can be planted from seed, most gardeners opt for first or second year crowns, which are established root systems. Dig a trench and make a mound that runs down the center. Plant each crown so that its center lies on that mound and the roots fall into the sides of the trench. This prevents rot. Growing from crowns helps you get a harvest sooner, as you shouldn't harvest from plants until their third year or so. Harvest earlier than three years, and you'll be limiting your patch's potential. Though by the time you do get to harvest, you'll want to pick every spear. It's best to leave some to grow. When you let asparagus be, each spear stretches into a tall and feathery, fern-like form unrecognizable to those not in the know. Female plants will carry bright red seeds, though some gardeners opt to grow hybrids bred to produce only male plants, avoiding seed production and the energy it steals away from the roots. These all-male varieties were developed at Rutgers University and carry the word Jersey in their name. I opted for the multi-gendered Martha Washington heirloom variety for my bed instead. I like the red berries and don't mind a slightly diminished spear production. 
In her work, My Garden Book, the writer Jamaica Kincaid describes the wonder of seeing asparagus spears pop out of the soil. Satisfaction was seeing the tips of the asparagus poke through the earth, she wrote, coming all the way up, wonderfully whole, real, and without blemish, just the way they should be, really, from the trenches in which I place their roots. Indeed, I can think of no other plant that pokes up through the soil quite like asparagus. Hostas may be, and come to think of it, I've heard that hosta shoots can be eaten and taste quite like asparagus, though I've never tried them myself. Asparagus is said to contain the elusive fifth flavor, recently added to round out sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. Say it with me, umami. To get the best umami, eat your asparagus straight from the garden. Do not pass go. Use a sharp knife to cut asparagus spears near the soil when they're about six to eight inches long. Asparagus from the store is often woody at the end, but garden fresh asparagus cut at the right time won't be. If you do harvest spears a little overgrown, you can snap off the woodier ends. Speaking of woods, way before modern foragers trekked through overgrown urban lots looking for edible plants to post on Instagram, writer and back-to-the-lander Yule Gibbons made this plant famous in his 1962 book, Stalking the Wild Asparagus. Asparagus was his first foray into foraging at 12 years old. I suppose this wild vegetable is really no better than the cultivated kind, he admitted, but because of the memories it evokes, it always tastes better to me. It is exactly the same species as the cultivated varieties. Birds long ago scattered the seeds from domestic plants, and now all over the eastern states and in irrigated sections of the west, wild asparagus grows in fence corners and hedgerows. Have asparagus will travel. In a different way, asparagus has traveled with Appalachian author Barbara Kingsolver throughout her life. In the book Animal Vegetable Miracle that she wrote alongside her husband and children about their year-long project to eat locally, Kingsolver says, In my adult life, I have dug asparagus beds into the property of every house I've owned, and some I rented, even tiny urban lots and student ghettos always leaving behind a vegetable legacy waving in the wake of my Johnny Asparagus seed life. I suppose in those unsettled years, I was aspiring to a stability I couldn't yet purchase. To be sure, an established asparagus patch is quite a legacy and a home feature to be touted. When I was a student at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, an English professor of mine would invite students over to his backyard each spring to toast the arrival of the asparagus with martinis. Speaking of, I think I may spot a spear poking through the soil in my patch now. Spring is here. Bring me a martini. And you have just heard from Kelly Smith Trimble, a new monthly contributor to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. If you might have a gardening question for Kelly, we invite you to send your question by email to Kelly at her website, kellysmithtrimble.com, and she spells that last name T-R-I-M-B-L-E. And I've also placed links to her and her website and how to get in touch with her, along with all of my guests and podcast notes and the podcast to this show and pictures of them and all that stuff at TennesseeFarmTable.com. This is Johnny with Crooked Road Farm. 
and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.